Culture and Psychology with Tabana. A very warm hello to our Ready Bombed Out listeners. Uh, I'm sitting um, another week with Dr. Rockers and Dr. Andrade, two of my friends and colleagues from Tavana organization. Uh, we are going to talk about the birth order and the family dynamic. A birth order refers to order a child is born in their family. And uh, firstborn, secondborn, are examples. So birth order is often believed to have a profound effect on psychological development. And um, Alfred Adler, an Australian um, psychiatrist uh, and a um, contemporary of uh, Freud and Carl Jung was one of the first theories to suggest the birth order and the influence on the personality. So today um, I'm sitting with um, two psychologists and myself, and we are gonna talk about the family dynamic and the birth order. Well, let's jump right in and get started here. I think it makes sense if you consider that children are, fo are formed and influenced by external events, right? It's the nature versus nurture type of a question, nurture being how our parents treat us and the environment of the home. So they're going to be, we're going to be affected by those events. That's just a normal part of things. When parents have kids, generally with the first kid, they are inexperienced. There's no directions or instruction book that comes with being a parent. So they're often learning on the first one and the first one has to plow the way and so on and so forth. That's that's my jumping off point there. So I think, yes, totally makes sense. Alex, what do you think? You agree? Yeah, that or disagree? That, no, I totally agree. And it, it's one of those things where it's often unsaid and unrecognized. Uh, I, I think it's something as uh, COVID is lifting and people are starting to get together, uh, I've started to see those dynamics kind of come out. Uh, I'm the oldest in my family. So it's one of those things I, I notice where as soon as we're all together, I'm, I'm kind of without even realizing, I'm kind of directing people. I'm like, hey, you know, mom needs this, go do that. And, and like, I, I don't even mean to, but it's just kind of the dynamic that kind of plays out. And it's been interesting because it's uh, definitely been something over the years I've had to be more thoughtful of in the sense that my, my siblings are grown adults. I can't just boss them around uh, as I used to. Uh, I try to every now and then still, yeah. but uh, yeah. Yeah, but uh, it's just so interesting in that way how when you're together again, those dynamics kind of play out. But yeah, during uh, the early stages, how those form is such an interesting thing. And, and the, the fact that there's so much kind of commonality, universality to it. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of curious too, uh, as far as like how culture kind of plays into that, because I think it's also one of those things that's kind of unsaid or unrecognized, but is a part of one's life as well. And um, recent research has consistently found that the earlier born children score slightly higher on average on a measure of intelligence. And that is really interesting, but they have found zero or almost zero robust effect on birth order on personality. Uh, but nevertheless, now this is a very popular subject in pop psychology and um, uh, popular culture. So I personally, if I look at my family dynamic, 
I see uh, with my siblings, almost every one of the children that are firstborn, they're very responsible. Uh, they're organized. Uh, they sort of have very strong saying in the family. Um, they, um, you know, feel like they have to take care of the family. It's amazing. Even in a, like, um, I have um, five um, nephews and nieces that are firstborn and they are it's amazing when I look at the dynamic in their families they have very strong saying and their brothers and sisters usually listen to them they're very very responsible successful they have a good job it feels like they're the ones that they're go-getters in in some ways they have to yeah they have to plow ahead I mean they're trailblazers in a lot of ways firstborns are I think it would, uh, going back to the culture thing, remember if it was you, Alex, or you said, hey, that talked about that, mentioned that, but I would expect there to be cultural difference. If you come from an individualist culture, probably the firstborn is definitely going to be that trailblazer and probably more leaning towards somehow doing trailblazing things as an individual. And in collective, more collective cultures, group-oriented, probably... They will be trailblazers, but in a slightly different fashion. That would be my guess. What's your take? I haven't looked at that that way, but that's a good point to really start looking because um, I only were usually focusing on just the personality of each of the firstborns. But um, I noticed that the younger children, whether in the families, usually there are two or three these days. So usually the youngest, if they're three, are more ambitious because they're kind of competing with the other ones. If they're only two, they're laid back. It's so interesting. And I see that in my family and in my brother, sister's family, that the children, the firstborn is get going as go-getter, organized, Uh, they are very successful. Uh, Not that the the other ones aren't, but if there are three in the family, usually the little one is competing with the other two. But if there are two, the younger one is laid back. It seems like, well, the older one is taking care of things. You know, I better just sit back and relax. It's interesting along those lines too. A lot of times they say like the middle child is kind of more of like the jester, the one that's kind of kind of vying for attention. Um, and it, it's funny too because I, I think of uh, uh, my siblings uh, and how those dynamics kind of play out. And it's funny. I do feel like there's a lot of truth to that. There's like a kind of a need for attention in a way of kind of playfulness and joking. Um, uh, and so it's like how kind of how common that is and just plays out in those ways. And it's just thinking about it, the, you know, the oldest has probably got a lot of attention because they were the only child for a while. And then the third child or other children after that, you know, they're the baby. And so they get that kind of uh, attention and focus uh, in a different way. So the idea that the middle child needs to kind of find ways to get that, uh, could get noticed, which sometimes could mean that they get in trouble or, uh, you know, there's some, some problems there as well too. Uh, what are your guys' view on the idea of like a middle child? Do you feel like that fits? Um, how does that relate to culture too? I'm curious. I'm a middle child or a second, second of four. And I can see for myself, there's such a strong, strong 
whole for me. Mm. I want to have my own. I know that's for writing. Always the striving self, not be grouped. I suspect that has something to do with, you know, being second. Kind of, you know, you want to be your own self. And with the second, the way I reason this out in my mind, parents, the second child, they've already gone through the first child and they've kind of, the parents have, and they've sort of gotten the drill on that. So now it's, now we've got two and we're working two. The first one is more unique. The second one is of two to the parents. And I don't mean that as a criticism, just more as in trying to objectively understand well, what, you know, what would, how would it? I personally think it's amazing effect on, um, you know, children, the family order, the uh, children's birth order. I just, my own experience was that I was, um, the youngest of, of girls, and I had a younger brother or have a younger brother, I always was, I felt like I always had um, two sets of parents, not only my, my parents, uh, because when I go back to how I was listening to my older siblings, it was always like, not only I have my parents, I had also another set of parents. And I was always listening to them and sort of taking order from them. And anything I wanted to do, I was checking with them. So that was going on and on. And I um, finally, when I came to United States as an individual, I had a very hard time to make decisions for myself. And I was always thinking, oh, what do I do with this? Um, I had to call or talk to my mom or my siblings. And eventually I realized, oh, this is what is happening. I wasn't used to make decisions for myself, you know, and I started taking this seriously. Uh, simple things, even simplest thing, I was always checking with them. And um, gradually I started picking up on myself and started making decisions. And it was like liberty. It was like freedom for me as I was becoming more independent and making decisions for myself. And then on top of that, when I became a teacher, every single day I had to make, uh, as they said, research shows three, between 300 to 500 decisions during the day at work. So that helped me um, separately from just really uh, focusing on my behavior as a person that why can I make decisions for myself, you know, and, um, and then I just became too independent, probably that was me, you know, but it was suppressed, it was suppressed all these years. And then, as I said, gradually, I was by myself, nobody was around, I had to make decisions, I had to work, I have to decide what subject I want to take, what career I want to take, and all of that uh, made me a different person, I think. If I had stayed in that dynamic, and with my family, probably, uh, I would say I would have been probably different. So a real clear example of birth order make a lot of difference. Because if you were the first, it would have been totally different. Having to make all your decisions to begin with, right? Oh, my sister, who is the oldest, 
she was the leader. She was just telling us if we need a haircut, if you know what I mean, it was just uh, take us to the hairdresser, say, you know, cut the hair, and then I would come out and cry. I didn't want to cut my hair. No, you have to cut your hair. <laughs> so it was a lot going on in our family dynamic because my older sister was really the leader. And my parents were just really... Um, I'm sure they were observing, they were probably the main leader. But as far as I remember, my older sister was running the show. There is an interesting dynamic as well, I submit, that the individual personality that kind of comes into that role and then the influence of the place where you're born, those kind of go together. Because there can be, I was just thinking as you were talking about with your sister, I could see someone can take charge in a lot of different ways. Somebody could take charge in a very kindly, caring way. Another could take charge in more of a drill sergeant. So there's an individual that enters into it as well. There's that kind of complicator, right? Absolutely. You know, my sister is a very kind person, very kind. But I guess when it came to something that she probably felt is the best for us, she would just lead us towards that, you know, and, um, you know, you're absolutely right. Imagine if someone has um, just a meanness in them, you know, <laughs> how they can really influence differently. Uh, now we are talking about a very kind and nice person who was really telling us what to do. Even that, you know what I mean? It's like, she could have asked us, do you want to have a haircut? Do you want to, you know, I mean, simple things, but as a child that affects you because I remember I was crying for a long time that I didn't want to cut my hair and my hair was short, short. Mm -hmm. And I said, I never wanted this short hair, but Mm -hmm. she goes, no, it's summer and you're swimming, you're doing this and that. Mm -hmm. It's better (laughs) to cut your hair. It's interesting too, because one thing I think as being the oldest, as I mentioned, I remember very distinctly having this feeling that like I was responsible for my siblings. And so that was the thing too. It was like, I can get in trouble or something bad can happen if they don't do what they need to do or what they're supposed to do. So that responsibility, that's the, I think the cutting edge to that responsibility. Um, You know, so, and I think because of that, I probably came off a lot meaner when I was young and growing up with my siblings because no, they had to do this thing. And there was a reason, you know, like with your sister, maybe there was a reason why, you know, you had to do that. She didn't give you the choice because if, uh, you know, those things didn't happen, then it would be difficult or complicated or something bad can happen. And and I think it can be even so small as no, you need to do this because if your hair gets, you know, tangled or if it's messed up and then mom's going to have to do it and then that takes time and then why didn't you just cut it short? And so, yeah, it's so interesting. And and probably they hadn't learned to really explain everything to you so nowadays they talk to the kids they explain everything so you know you expect what happens but before and in older days you do this without even explanation Mm -hmm. you know you're absolutely right I'm sure there was good reason for someone who cared and who was kind but 
no explanation, but maybe that was either the culture or that was the time that we were living. Because even when I was reading um, the mindset, uh, Dr. Carol Dweck was talking about the old days when coaches or, ch or teachers called home and said something about the child in classroom or in sport, parents were taking it seriously would talk to their children say hey you need to listen to your coach you need to do this because your teacher called but in today's world because the parents are always worried about the self-esteem of children they never do these kind of stuff and that's why we are running into situations where the kids we always talk about the cancel culture or you know all of this is the result of Everything has to be to your favor, you know, yeah. I, I, you don't have tolerance for anything. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, we could probably talk about that a whole separate topic. Cause I, I think there's so much truth to what you're saying right there. And so, yeah, it's tricky, but uh, yeah, I mean, I wonder how that's going to play out in family dynamics uh, as we, as we move forward in, in this world and you know, what families look like. Which part, the tolerance part? Or? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's just have a break and come back to continue our conversation. We are back with Dr. Rockers and Dr. Andrade, and we started today talking about the um, order of the children in the family, the birth order. And we talked about uh, Alfred Adler, an um, Australian psychiatrist and a contemporary of uh, Sigmund Freud, uh, Freud and Carl Jung um, was the uh, first theorist of this and suggested that the best order influence personality. Uh, he argued that birth order can leave an um, impression on an individual's style of life. But later, there's a lot of research um, regarding this and also the effect on intellectual um, scores and also um, personality effect. Some say there's no effect on personality, but the research shows that there's definitely effect on intellectual level. So we are conversing about this and we got to a point that uh, we each feel that in our personal life, as an example, the birth order was a tremendous effect on each of us. I was going to ask about uh, the ideas about being the youngest child. Uh, it's funny in my uh, experience, uh, my youngest sibling, who's 10 years younger than me, 
uh, I always, we, we grew up, he, he was like, I almost feel like he was a toy. Like he was this like little baby and we can like, you know, take him places and like buy him things. Like I remember I, I spoiled this kid when I was like a teenager and he was like six or seven and he was like, oh, I want BB guns. I was like, sure, you know, I'm 17, 18, I have money. I can buy you BB guns if you want. And, um, and it's funny, I think one of the things that's so interesting and still to this day, most of the time, if I ever dream about him, he's still a little kid. And it's so weird too. I don't know what that's about, but in my mind, it, it's like, he's this little, you know, this little kid, he's a grown man now. He's almost like 30 something. But it, in my mind and growing up in our family, like he was the youngest, he was the baby. And so we always, you know, kind of were accustomed to kind of taking care of him and, uh, you know, taking him where he wanted to and giving him things he wanted. So, um, you know, the idea that the baby is of the family is the spoiled one. And even sometimes too, that I've heard this too, they, they have like different parents than the oldest child. And I think it goes to what you were mentioning a minute ago, Dan, uh, you know, parents were kind of figuring it out the first time. And then by the time, you know, several years later, they're like, eh, all right, we've, you know, we raised the kids, you know, it's like, uh, they, the kid wants whatever, fine. We'll just give it to them. We're not going to, we're not going to fight. We're tired. We're not going to fight it. And we're just going to allow that to happen. Uh, what is your guys' take on that or experience with the, uh, uh, those kind of views? I, I agree with that. I, to some extent, I agree. I think that the parents have gotten tired, but they've also <laughs> have just seen that maybe they don't have to worry about as many things as they originally worried about. I know in the past few years, my mom has said, I've heard her say it more than a couple times, you know, when, when we were young, meaning her and my dad, she said, when we were young, I worried about so many things I thought were important. And she says, now I realize they weren't really that important at all. And she was talking about being hard on us kids or disciplining us kids. And she realized, and I think that's what happens for a lot of parents. And the first one, you don't know because you don't have any instruction book. There's no rule book. There's no guidelines. It's only for women. I think a, lot, a number of women have done babysitting and that gives them an advantage. But a lot of guys haven't done as much babysitting. It's not the traditional role anyway. And they may not know. So young couples often don't know. And well, I'm the live example of that because uh, when we had our first child, honestly, I was at the middle of the night getting up to make sure my son is breathing right. And what if what if he dies when I in the morning I get up? It's, it's just to that extent, because you don't know anything, you just feel like, oh, he didn't cry for all this time, maybe, you know, something's wrong, you would get up and look at the breathing to make sure he, he is breathing. But then everything is new, even when he was, I remember 10 years or 11 years, and he wanted to go to a short trip with one of his friends and his family I remember how worried I was I went to the friend's house I sat there with the family I asked exactly which route they're going which highway they're going I wrote down everything and you know you're just you don't know you know it's just the first experience my second child it was easy because you had the experience never questions a lot when he was doing different things. You have the experience, you know. So I think the first child, one of the reasons maybe they become more responsible is because they see you 
being so conscientious and, you know, ask questions, you want to make sure, you know, I think the parent's behavior also affects the first child. That is a great, great thought there. I didn't think about it that way. You're right. The parents are different parents in terms yeah. of their own development as they have more children. Right. Imagine my 11-year-old sees me sitting with that family, checking everything, going through everything. He learns right there, you know, the importance of knowledge, the importance of, you know, being conscientious. I guess your behavior teaches the children as well, because my second child, for example, if he wanted to go with his friend's family, I would just say, you know, okay, I know the family is have fun. It's great. You know, just make sure to call. But my first child took it very differently. You know, I think one of the, the a, a clear example of that stands out too. that idea of uh, being different parents. I've heard a lot of people comment on their parents now as grandparents and them being completely different with their children than with themselves. And, and I've even had people be like, I don't know who this guy is. My dad is all playing with the kids and he's sweet and he's laughing. That wasn't my dad. When I grew up, my dad was yelling at me, telling me, knock it off, be quiet. And he's encouraging this whole other behavior. And so it's one of those things where People are like, are they different? Did they change? Uh, I think sometimes it's the relationship, the role, like they're a grandparent. They're not that, you know, they don't have to parent. They don't have to have all that responsibility and worry. They can just have the fun. So again, I think it, it speaks to that idea of that, that role that we have within the family too, and how that could even play with some of those dynamics. I think to some extent, there's also with the parent and the child, there ends up being a lot of unresolved issues, things that have gone on, hurt feelings both ways. Because as, as kids, we say things which hurt our parents' feelings, and we don't know it because we're kids. And as parents, we say things which hurt our kids' feelings and maybe feel bad later about it, like my mom was saying, she's worried about all that stuff. So I think there's a lot of those unresolved things that go on between the kids. And then when there's a generation skip with the grandkids, it's starting up a brand new relationship and they've been through all that stuff. So it's, it is a different person connecting the grand. Um, I guess, you know, this is uh, really interesting now that we are talking about grandchildren and their, um, you know, grandson or daughter and their behavior um, because they don't feel they're responsible. And as Dan said was, um, you know, there's always unresolved issues with parents because same as with me and, and my siblings that they were always telling me what to do and what not to do. And just brought me to a point that sometimes I felt that, you know, why didn't they explain it to me and they just did it, you know, like the haircut, for example, it's just something very simple. But I had that with my dad. When my dad came here to visit me after experiencing American life and after experiencing being independent, being more individualist, um, I was talking to my dad and I said, I remember when I was growing up, you always, you know, made uh, so many rules for us. And we had to sleep at this time. We have to do this at this time. Uh, my dad was more disciplinary than my mom. 
And, um, and he actually, you know, I never forget that the sweetest thing that I could hear and resolve everything in a second for me was that he just pulled his shoulder up and he says, my dear, this is how much I knew, you know, and it was just like, he said it in such a kind and nice way with the loving voice that I was protecting you. And this is how much I knew, you know what I mean? It was just so sweet and just melted me right there that he just said, rather than defending himself and bringing all these excuses, he just put his shoulder up, shoulders up and he goes, this is how much I knew. And I was trying to protect, you know, um, and he was an educator. He um, knew psychology at that time. I mean, he never brought any of those up to say, hey, you know, I had studied this at that time. I knew this is the best for you. He just said that very simply. And I thought I learned so much from there. It wasn't what we were, I was arguing about. It was about he realizing how I felt and recognized that and said that. And I just thought, what a great way when someone says something about, you know, how you made them feel, just to say, I didn't mean anything. And this is how I felt rather than bringing all this ego thing in the middle. Um, and um, yeah, that was my experience as well. Because when I was living here, I was just thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, um, you know, this was this, this is a difference. I see now how this society, the parents do, but, um, you know, all these rules in our house. And he just did it so well that it just resolved my issues right there with him. What a great story. I was going to say, it reminds me to the idea. I think one of the hardest things for people to do sometimes is to see their parents as people and to be able to even talk to them in that very authentic way. And it sounds like that was kind of the exchange you had. You, you came to him as like a person, yet still his daughter. And to be able to like, why was it this way? Which is one of those things to talk about the dynamics and the relationship and, and to be you know so vulnerable to be able to say, well, for you to be vulnerable enough to say that as well as for him to be authentic enough to be able to say that and like you said not defend or you know be hurt by that but just be real and be like i didn't know <laughs> uh and so i think it it adds a new layer to the relationship when we're able to do that i think it's hard i think there's i think it's moments like that um, but i think it's hard for a lot of people because it means really you know who feels comfortable saying i didn't know what i was doing you know, who, who feels comfortable saying, like, I didn't know what it meant to be a parent. Uh, when, like you said, uh, at the very beginning, Dan, there's no guidebook or rule book, you know, nobody says, oh, this is what you're supposed to do, or how you're supposed to do it. They're very idealized roles, uh, to be a mother, to be a father. Um, there's a lot of pressure, probably and expectations in, in doing those things, right. I think that it definitely impacts people in that way, where we all walk away from our childhood with something. Uh, can we acknowledge it? Uh, address it and maybe even resolve it as adults, I think is the, is the challenge and the struggle in that way. Right. Can we not play it out on to our children, our own issues that where, where, what were you going to say Saturday? Uh, no, I was just going to say it was Robert Zajons, um, one of the psychologists. I knew it starts with Z. You remember. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that argued for confluence model in which the lack of siblings experience 
by firstborns exposes them to the more intellectual adult family environment um, and, and predicts similar increases in IQ for siblings who next oldest siblings is at least five years senior. So that was him who brought that up. Explain that last part again. I'm, I didn't follow that, the five-year senior thing. What does that well, say? Well, he says these children, the, the children um, that we just talked that who are next oldest sibling is at least five years senior. These children are considered to be functional firstborns. The theory further predicts that firstborns will be more intelligent than only children because the latter will not benefit from the tutor effect. For example, teaching younger siblings. So basically, if um, I'm the only child and I don't have any sibling after me, I don't have the opportunity to tutor, to really work on my intelligence and practice. It's just like becoming a teacher. And they always say, when you teach, you learn more yourself and you are you become more knowledgeable. So the only children or the only child, the only child doesn't have that opportunity. So they say those that they're senior, at least five years to their younger siblings, because they tutor, because they teach, they have higher intelligence. And actually research uh, shows that the first child is uh, maybe even a tiny bit of the scores higher, but this is something that is ongoing uh, conversation. Many psychologists believe in birth order, some don't. Um, some, the research shows that it doesn't have that much effect on um, personality as we are conversing and talking about our own um, experiences we feel like it has affected us maybe at least at some point until we realize we pick it up from there and if we have a strong personality maybe that's then we can really pick it up and become ourselves so with that I want to ask for another break um, uh, and colleagues, we're going to come back and converse about the birth order.
We're back with Dr. Rockers and Dr. Andrade, and we continue our conversation about birth order, um, the child's, the children's, and the family and the birth order. Um, I was going to say, in regard to sexual orientation, it's interesting because um, in um, Wikipedia, I was reading that the fraternal birth order effect is the name given to the theory that the more older brothers a man has, the greater the probability is that he will have a homosexual orientation. The fraternal birth order effect is said to be the strongest known predictor of sexual orientation. With each older brother increases a man's odds of being gay by approximately 33%. One of the largest studies to date, um, however, suggests a smaller effect of 15% higher odds. Even so, the fraternal birth order effect only accounts for a maximum of one-seventh of the prevalence of homosexuality in men. There seems to be no effect on sexual orientation in women and no effect of the number of older sisters. This is a really interesting research that I never had thought about, that the, if a child has more old, older brothers, the chance that they become um, a gay is more. 33% is pretty high number. And That's I just wonder how that would affect the sexuality. That's mm. an interesting research. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that research, uh, uh, but that, yeah, it sounds very interesting that way. It does remind me of the idea that, uh, you know, like gender identity, as far as how a child is treated, um, happens within moments of being born. For example, uh, upon moments of being born, people will be rougher with, you know, a, a, a male infant and have these ideas of, you know, being rough and playful, where for girls, it's this idea of soft and gentle and things like that. And uh, I can't remember the exact number, but it, it's like within minutes of being born, this is how people are acting towards the child, even the terms they use to describe the child, uh, if it's a male infant, oh, he looks so strong, uh, a female infant, oh, she looks so, you know, precious, she looks so gentle. Um, and, and just how quickly in our existence, we start getting shaped uh, and influenced by these, um, you know, the, these social kind of uh, ideas of masculinity and femininity. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely something that is, is imposed in, in part very, uh, very instantly. Uh, and then also too, with families of, you know, thinking again, the birth order, um, you know, uh, you'll hear the term, uh, or the, I'm not sure if it's still used of the idea of like a tomboy. It's like if a girl has a bunch of siblings, uh, male siblings, um, she's more of a tomboy or more used to, you know, being kind of rough in that way, um, where it's like, okay, well, that can still be feminine in that way. It's just, uh, you know, a different uh, idea or expectation of it. And so, yeah, I think those are, are you know, things that can influence how one um, kind of is perceived and maybe one's act. Um, besides the research you mentioned, I'm not sure about, you know, uh, sexual, sexual orientation as far as how those things influence that or how that relates. But um, yeah, again, these roles kind of playing out um, for, for I guess um, one of the most important that 
affects uh, is the environment you grow up in. Like when you were talking about the tomboy, if if you are a feminine if, if a girl and you have lots of uh, male siblings, I was just imagining, depending how your relationship with your mom is, you know, if you are a single girl in a family of three, four boys, if you have a very close relationship with your mom, you really gravitate towards that relationship and you learn from your mother. But if you don't have that close relationship and you don't look up to your mom, what happens is you pick up from the behavior and the personality of your father or your siblings, and then you go that route and you become more like tomboy. It's just so many little factors that can affect a person's personality or, you know, behavior. Um, so it's, it's how, you know, you are raised in that environment also. Yeah, interesting wanted to bring up the the idea of the topic too because i think it's important especially for listeners the idea of like the scapegoat um and kind of what that is in a family and i find it can be one of those dynamics that ends up playing out into adulthood a lot of times and can be very difficult for people to recognize it just becomes there's this one identified uh, uh child or sibling who is like the problem uh person in the family and i think when we are unaware of that tendency or that frequency to just see them as that. Um, it's like they, there's there's no there's no coming back from that. So I think that's something that can be helpful. And, and typically, and I'd love to hear you guys' kind of view on it. The scapegoat is this one identified person in the pro, in the family who's kind of viewed as the problem. It's like they can't do anything right. They always make the wrong decisions. Um, it, it's kind of like almost the idea a lot of times is all the family's problems are kind of put on that one person. Uh, and a lot of times it ends up where that person feels you know defeated. It's like they are the problem. I think in family therapy uh, or sometimes even... Uh, uh, parents bring their their children to therapy they'll be like you know he he or she is always you know being bad or they're they're never listening you know they're just identifying this individual as the problem where a lot of times from a systems approach it's like okay well what's not working in the family why is this person identified or is the problem or why are they acting out on maybe some of those family dynamics uh, what are what are you guys' take on on the scapegoat? Do you see that as something that kind of plays out to adult, adulthood as well? Um, what do you think? I think it yes, absolutely, hundred percent. Because what happens is we acquire our identity, and as children, if we become the scapegoat, you can take on that. The, your world view becomes bad stuff that happens is eventually going to filter back to being me as a causal agent. It's going to be my fault. And that feeling of defeated, that is that, or, and it can be a victim mentality as well, and, and not incorrect either, will get as an identity and those identities that we take on, those are embedded way, way, way deep inside us. And they are resistant to change. It's not that they can't change, but they are resistant. So things, the way that I would approach people as an adult, if I am an identified patient or a scapegoat in childhood, this is going to be different than if I wasn't, right? All of my social relationships will probably have some flavor in there somehow, and that will be a thing I will have to work through. Is uh, the scapegoat also the clown, or is this the youngest child? Could be the clown, but it's a different concept. The yeah. clown is somebody who... Um, 
alleviates tension through humor. And the scapegoat is somebody who gets blamed for everything. Anytime there's another problem, it's real convenient just to say, oh, well, that's so-and-so. Yeah, I knew it. Okay. So the family all gets a pass because they can dump all the problems onto the identified patient, right? Or the scapegoat child. I think a classic example of this stands out when like kids are playing and then like one of them hits them and then it's like, okay, they hit them back. And then the kid who, who didn't start it gets yelled at. It's like, I, I got hit first. Like, I'm just, you know, no, stop hitting your brother. It's like, I didn't do anything. Like he hit me first. And then it just becomes like, I'm always doing the wrong thing. Uh, and so, yeah, it's just like, yeah, definitely see that playing out in that way, uh, even with kids nowadays in that way. So I, I try to yell at all the kids equally. I don't know if that's the way to handle that. So yeah. <laughs> Yelling is a good program. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, it's so really delicate when you're raising a child to be careful uh, of everything you say or you do. Um, so we had a great conversation um, and we... Um, always when we start a topic there's so much to talk about and our time is short so with that we want to uh, say goodbye to our listeners and um, wish them a great saturday night we come back tomorrow and we have another psychological um, topic to converse Yeah.
Oh, shut up.